And this evening then, uh, I have some uh, bad news and I have some good news, or rather, Nahum does. For as we then resume our study of his book, we'll see that Nahum has bad news, very bad news, for Nineveh, for the Assyrians, but good news for Judah, the people of God in his day. And indeed, it's really, it's two sides of the same coin. For what is bad news for Nineveh is good news for Judah. And our reading then for this evening is actually quite a lengthy one because we're going to start where we left off last time. We did the first six verses of Nahum uh, chapter 1. So we've got to read the rest of chapter 1 and we're going to actually read right through to the end of chapter 2. So Nahum chapter 1 beginning verse 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, O Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. This is what the Lord says. Although they are unscathed and numerous, they will be cut down and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look there in the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. The shields of his soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of pine are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. He summons his picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Its slave girls moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool 
and its water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. Where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went and the cubs with nothing to fear? The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Before then, and it's obviously it's been a long reading there, but before we get into the text, it is good, I think, that we do a wee bit of um, a history lesson. It does actually make me laugh. Um, that because um, for two years I was the acting head of department in a local grammar school despite the fact that I had never ever taught a single period of history in my life before or after but that is another story so this is going to be a very basic history lesson and it concerns then Nineveh Nineveh the capital city of the Assyrian uh, Empire, was a hugely significant city in the ancient world, second only to Babylon. And it was the great Assyrian emperor, Sennacherib, who made Nineveh the capital city of Assyria back in 700 BC. And under his direction, the city doubled in size. Sennacherib built a new palace and he, uh, he modestly named it as the palace without a rival. And it had bronze lions, white marble bulls. It had a huge, huge great hall in it and an impressive armory of chariots, horses and weaponry. And under the next great Assyrian ruler, Ashurbanipal, who was mentioned last time, another palace was erected and the city's defences were strengthened further. In actual fact, Nineveh had two walls to protect it. It had an inner wall and an outer wall. The inner wall was eight miles in circumference and it was 100 feet high and it was so thick that three to four chariots could ride abreast on the actual wall that's how you know wide it was it had 1200 towers some of them rising to the height of 200 feet and then beyond the inner wall was the outer wall. And the outer wall, believe it or not, was 80 miles long. Whilst there was a series of ramparts and ditches for any invading army 
to have to negotiate. In addition to the inner wall and the outer wall, the city was surrounded by a moat as well. And the moat was 140 feet wide and 60 feet deep. And then on top of that, the river Tigris offered natural protection to Nineveh as well. It therefore looked as if the city of Nineveh was actually impregnable. And yet, in 612 BC, Nineveh was to collapse, failing or falling rather to an alliance of Babylonians, Medes, and Scythians. James Montgomery Boyce comments, the destruction of Nineveh is probably greater than the fall of any other city in all of history. So comprehensive was the destruction of uh, Nineveh that it was not until the 1840s that archaeologists could find any trace of Nineveh's priors existence. Moreover, for all of its impressive defenses, both uh, natural, the Tigris, and man-made, Nineveh succumbed to a siege which lasted no more than three months. The Assyrians had already lost another major city, Asher, two years previously. And by 605 BC, that is seven years after the destruction of Nineveh, following defeat to the Babylonians at Carchemish, the Assyrian Empire was consigned to the annals of history. So there's my history lesson. And that is the backdrop to what we have just read uh, this evening. And hopefully that will help us now to make sense of it as we walk our way through those verses. And what I want to do, or what I propose to do, is we're going to first of all look at those verses, which is the majority of them, which deal with the fate of Nineveh. And then we're sort of going to double back and look at the verses which speak of Judah's deliverance. And from each of the sections, I want to draw out then one lesson for ourselves. So first of all, the fate of Nineveh. So we're just going to work our way through what we've just been reading. Verse 8 of chapter 1 refers to an overwhelming flood with which the Lord will make an end of Nineveh. And going back to the history lesson, that is indeed what the historians and the archaeologists tell us contributed to the collapse of the city. It appears that at the time of the Babylonian-led siege of Nineveh, the waters of the Tigris River were especially high. And it is also thought that the invading armies temporarily blocked an aqueduct that supplied Nineveh with drinking water. They blocked the, the, the gates, the sluice gates, and then they suddenly opened them. And as a result of the high level of the Tigris and the sluice gates on the aqueduct being opened, the city was just 
inundated and its walls were thereby undermined and breached. Verse 8 continues, he will pursue his foes into darkness. That is the idea of um, not just the capture of the Ninevites, but actual annihilation, oblivion. Verse 9, whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring it to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. And the idea then is one of total destruction, so great that there will be absolutely no chance of recovery. Nineveh is going to disappear off the world's map. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. A city of which there were absolutely no known remains until the archaeological digs of the mid-19th century. Indeed, some secular scholars had, until those discoveries, they had written off Nineveh as a legendary city, a mythical city. They thought it was fabricated that there had been such a city as Nineveh. So complete was its destruction. But not so. It had existed, but now it was just a heap of rubble. Verse 10, they will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. The Assyrians would be unable to escape God's fiery judgment. And the reference there to drunkenness is an interesting one. Of course, at one level, it can just carry the meaning of complacency. You know, they were drunk, they were just complacent. Um, A false sense of their own well-being, of their own security. But it is also true that the Greek historian Diodorus records that the king of Nineveh allowed his whole army to become drunk as they celebrated foiling an initial attack by the Babylonians. And then they were in no fit state to repel the latest surprise onslaught. And the reference to being consumed like dry stubble is also interesting. We know that dry stubble is highly inflammatory. And when those archaeologists did their dig in the um, mid-19th century, what they discovered was very large deposits of ash. And they concluded that that was evidence of a gigantic fire. Verse 11 is actually a difficult verse to interpret, for we don't know the identity of this one who plots evil against the Lord and counsel wickedness. Some see it as likely a reference to Sennacherib, others to the more contemporary Ashurbanipal. But it is also possible to understand it as a reference to Belial or a worthless one. Belial, we know, became actually a watchword, a byword for Satan himself. You probably know um, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 15, 
where the Apostle Paul asked the Corinthians, Corinthians, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? So Belial was this idea of a worthless one. Verse 12, although they are unscathed and numerous, they will be cut down and pass away. How the mighty are going to fall. Verse 14, the Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. And this is another interesting one. For the Assyrian emperors were renowned for being very strongly motivated by thoughts of immortality and having their own son or sons succeed them on their throne was considered as very important to that end. But there will be no more Assyrians on the throne. Indeed, the historians tell us that the last king of Nineveh set fire to himself and his whole royal household and palace rather than suffer the fate that would have awaited him as the invading army would have captured him. Verse 14 continues, I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. The Assyrians had their own gods and goddesses, Asher, Ishtar, Nabu, but their temples also housed the gods of those nations that they had conquered. They will all be destroyed, says Nahum. Assyria is for the grave, for you are vile. And again, the idea is you are worthless, you are Belial. So we move into chapter 2. And the tone in chapter 2 is one of taunting. God actually mocks the Assyrians. Verse 1, an attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength, as if any of that is going to do any good at all. Brace yourselves. That is the idea of gird your loins. Or as the dyslexic might say, grid your lions. And uh, actually, we're going to return to lions in a moment. Verse 3, the shields of the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. Red was the color of the Babylonian army. Their clothes were actually, their shield, they were red But red is also, of course, the symbol of blood. And the language of warfare continues with reference to chariots. Chariots were, of course, the most advanced weaponry of their day. Rushing back and forth through Nineveh's streets. And the idea is of absolute mayhem being caused. No one is sure whether the troops that are referred to in verse 5 are the troops of the invader, the Babylonians, or the defender, the Assyrians. Um, You might think it's more likely to be um, the defender, the Assyrians, because it talks about a protective shield. But actually, 
what an invading army would do is they would form a protective shield and they would use that protective shield to advance towards the actual wall and they would use ramparts and sieges then with which to, um, uh, to actually scale the city wall, a siege ramp with which to scale the, the city wall. Verse 8, the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. I've already referred to the floodwaters and the sluice gates and also to the burning down of the king's palace. And just to elaborate a wee bit more on this idea of the the burning down of the king's palace, our Greek friend uh, Diodorus records how Sardanapalus, who was the last king of Nineveh, he remembered an oracle which said that Nineveh would only ever fall when the Tigris River declared war against it. And seeing the waters of the Tigris rise, he decided, games up, this prophecy is coming true. And he made a gigantic funeral pyre in the palace precincts. And then he shut himself in with all his family, with his concubines, with his eunuchs, and he burned everything and everyone to the ground. Verse 7 It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Whoever survived the slaughter would be taken captive and relocated to their enemy's homelands. The slave girls who moan like doves and beat upon their breasts may well refer to temple prostitutes, their gods unable to prevent the carnage. Verse 8 Nineveh is like a pool and its water is draining away. If you think of the image of a bath and, you know, take out the plug and, you know, the water draining away, that's the sort of image that is brought to mind here. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. The picture is one of people desperate to flee this mayhem, this carnage, And the authorities are unable to stop them fleeing. And I must admit, as I read that, it reminded me, because I'd been watching a film, um, about the people of Mosul during the period of ISIS. And the people of Mosul desperately trying to flee the city to get away from the oppressive rule. And the uh, ISIS shooting on them, doing everything they could to try to stop them from fleeing. Verse 9, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. The Assyrians' imperialist policy had led them to amass huge wealth by way of tribute, whilst those that they had defeated in war had their assets stolen and taken to the treasury and temples of the Assyrians. Nineveh is now going to have done to it what the Assyrians did to other nations. Pillaged, plundered, stripped. And again, going back to the archaeological digs in the 1840s, it is a fact that the archaeologists could not find 
any remain at all, any semblance at all of either gold or silver amongst the ruins. It had all been taken away or destroyed. Verse 10 presents an image of abject terror. Hearts melt, knees give way, and some of us can relate to that one. Bodies tremble, every face grows pale. And then we have verse 11 to 12 and our lion imagery. Sarcastically, the question is asked, where now is the lion's den? And what we mustn't miss here was that the lion, the symbol of the lion, was central to Assyrian culture. Lions featured in Assyrian artwork and statues. Indeed, it was not unknown for a lion to be kept as a pet. Not something I would particularly recommend if you're contemplating it today. Moreover, Assyrian emperors used the lion metaphor to describe their own power and conquests. Sennacherib had famously boasted, like a lion I raged. Whilst another Assyrian emperor, Ashur Nasserpal, not to be confused with Ashurbanipal. Why did they have to have such long names like that? But Ashurnasipal proclaimed, I am a lion brave. Like the lion, the Assyrians filled their lair, in their case with slaves and the booty of conquest. Like the lion cub, the people of Nineveh felt secure with nothing to fear. But they were in for a very rude awakening. For verse 13 says, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots and smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions, i.e. your soldiers. I will leave you no prey on the earth. And the passage ends with the Lord's declaration The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. It is well known that the Assyrian forces loved to taunt their enemies, as indeed happened to Judah in the days of King Hezekiah. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 8, how the Assyrians taunt Hezekiah, but their voices will soon be silenced never to be heard again. And our first big lesson then for tonight is that the Lord is all-powerful. The God that we worship and serve is omnipotent. He exercises complete sovereignty over men and over the kingdoms of this world. Assyria was the superpower of this day, of Nahum's day. Yet listen to what the prophet Zephaniah had to say of Nineveh's fate. This is the carefree city that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am, and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts, All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists, 
Zephaniah 2, verse 15. Destroyed and humiliated before the power of our Lord. And what was true of Assyria is true of today's superpowers and tyrants. China, Xi, Putin, Modi, Kim Il-sung in North Korea, they are putty in God's hands. They have their season of rule, but tomorrow they will be gone. They will be consigned to the history books and they will be awaiting the day of eternal judgment. So before I finish, I have to then backtrack and say something about Judah. And obviously there are far fewer verses in this section. Verse 7 of chapter 1 tells us, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. The Lord is good. God is good, both in the sense of his own essential moral perfection, but also in terms of his benevolence, his goodness towards man. And his being a refuge was taken up by Top Lady in the famous hymn, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And the expression that is translated as cares for is literally knows. And that was prayed earlier in our meeting by Vivian about our Lord knows us. And that is the idea of he cares for us. Remember the words of Jesus, I know my sheep, John 10 verse 14. And what a message this must have been to Judah. And then in verse 12, a message of comfort, I should say, to Judah. And then in verse 12, we read, Although I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. God had used the Assyrians as the rod of his anger with which to discipline his people. But now they would be set free from the threat of Assyrian aggression. And in verse 15, Nahum almost breaks into song. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. This is the herald. But the herald is no longer bringing a warning of imminent invasion. Rather, he is heralding a message of shalom, a cause of rejoicing, hence the invitation to Judah to celebrate your festivals. And you may well recognize that verse from your New Testament because in Romans 10 verse 15, it's applied by the Apostle Paul to those who bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world of sinners. And Nahum continues then in chapter 2 verse 2 to assure the Judeans that despite all the damage done to their nation by this foreign aggressor, by the Assyrians, he is going to restore their splendor. Judah can rejoice in what God is going to do for his own people. And that then brings us to the second big lesson for tonight's study. And it is this. God is absolutely committed 
to his own people. And he is absolutely committed to doing his own people good. And those who mistreat his people are going to be brought to account. They are going to be brought to account. As we saw last time, God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his own people. And those who harm his people are, so to speak, playing with fire. And what a comfort that is to our brothers and sisters that we were praying for earlier in North Korea, in the north of Mozambique, languishing in jails in China, in Eritrea or Iran. They are going to have their day of vindication. Their enemies, their persecutors are going to be brought to account. And you and I can take great encouragement and solace from the reality that God knows us. He cares for us and he is committed to our shalom, to your shalom. Shalom is your your wellness, your wellness, peace and wellness. God is committed to that for you. So as we leave this place tonight, Let's us be genuinely thankful and grateful to our God for the fact that he knows us. That is, he loves and cares for us, his New Testament people. And let us be all the more determined to serve him with all our being, for he is worthy. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.